Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hey, hey, how's it going? This is Danielle Delamar, and you are listening to episode 92. I hope you're well, and I hope that you're celebrating your end of semester at this point, or, you know, at least over the hump of all the grading and all the stuff. You probably aren't, but I'm wishing that for you if you're not. <laughs> Um, I had the pleasure of talking in today's interview with Dr. James Hart. And let me just tell you, this conversation was unlike any conversation I have ever, ever had on the podcast. It was fascinating. It was intriguing. It was mind-boggling. <laughs> um, I am still left with a sense of awe after having talked to Dr. Hart. And I, I have no words, which is actually okay because he has a lot of words. <laughs> I was struck by how much Dr. Hart remembered. I mean, he talks about memory in this episode as like a, a, a problem of sort of our contemporary society. And he remembered everything when we talked. I mean, I was just shocked by the dates and the names of people and the details that he describes when he brings up a piece of scholarship. Anyway, you'll see what I mean. You're really going to love this interview. I know I did. Um, here's Dr. Hart now. Hello, hello. Welcome to our conversation today. I'm talking to Dr. James Hart, founder, president, chairman, and trainer of trainers at BioCybernaut Institute. I guess it would be the BioCybernaut Institute. How are you, Dr. Hart? Happy to be here and glad that you're here too. Me too. I was getting a little nervous there for a second with my, you know, health checks not passing. But we got the audio going and things are good. Um, so you are in this really interesting, unique position to speak to a couple different things, um, which are sort of the, the center of my podcast. And one is to talk about career diversity for academics because a lot of academics feel like they only can be in academia um, and they don't have any other sort of uh, vision to go anywhere else or, or they can't think of where they might wanna go. Um, so that's the first one. And then the second piece is around career wellness. A lot of my listeners are dealing with overwhelm and they're dealing with burnout and they're dealing with stress. And I know some of the, and I know that the work you do at the BioCybernaut Institute is uh, wellness work, biofeedback training, which can help with those. So what do you want to talk about first? Should we talk about your career journey or should we talk about uh, the biofeedback training you do? Well, for your listeners, probably the, the biggest pain point is, or pain points are the ones you talked about, burnout, overwhelm, you know, what to do. What do they want to do when they grow up? You know, that kind of uh, question. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this is where BioCybernaut excels. And it, it, to be uh, more precise, people excel at BioCybernaut because they have, probably for the first time in their lives, accurate feedback about what's going on inside their head, their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. Mm. Accurate feedback. Now, the brain is our organ of feedback. You can, for example, put your hand behind your head where you can't see it, even close your eyes in case there's a mirror nearby. And in rapid succession, you can bring your thumb and forefinger, thumb and middle finger, thumb and index finger, thumb and ring finger, 
uh, someone pinky, all of those together. I know that sounded like a, a five fingers instead of uh, four, but <laughs> do this uh, in rapid fire succession and you don't miss because your brain has information about where your body is. It has feedback. And this is true of pretty much all parts of your body, except significantly and uh, uh, intriguingly and puzzlingly, the organ of feedback, the brain, has no feedback about itself. This would seem like the missing link in development, the missing link in evolution. Why does the organ of feedback not have feedback about itself? Well, a partial answer is in um, a book uh, called uh, Psychology and Spirituality in America, The Great Awakening. Uh, and in it, uh, the author says that when the processes of consciousness, when consciousness itself becomes the object of consciousness, it is always a transforming moment. Mm. Uh, this is a big deal. When the when consciousness becomes the object of consciousness, is is always a transforming moment. Now, some of the transformations that I've documented in my long, long, long academic career have included a fifty percent increase in creativity. That's online bread and butter for any academic. Uh, there's also an eleven point seven point increase in IQ which in my research is stable, that IQ boost is stable at least a year out, maybe longer. We haven't tested longer than a year. Uh, okay. There is also a big increase in EQ, emotional intelligence, which averages 15.8 points in our premium double alpha training. And uh, according to Travis Bradbury, Dr. Travis Bradbury and Janine Greaves in their book, Emotional Intelligence, 2.0, uh, EQ is the master skill of success, accounting for almost 60% of your success in life, whereas IQ, maybe 10, maximum 20%. The smartest professor in the department, but if you can't get along with people, uh, your career path is kind of truncated. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't have, you won't have grad students working for you and you won't be able to get grants. The site visit team won't like you. And so, uh, but in addition to all these positive changes, the BioCybernaut Alpha training also profoundly reduces all forms of psychopathology. Ones that we've measured include all the clinical scales on the MMPI, uh, which include most significantly uh, depression, anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, hypochondriasis, psychopathic deviancy. And so um, with these things diminished, these negatives diminished, even if they're subclinical, they're diminished. Uh, and all those positive things like creativity, IQ, emotional intelligence increased, you have the opportunity to thrive in a way that you may never have thrived in your life before. We, psychologists have known since the late 1880s, when they began doing experiments on anxiety, that anxiety, stress, however, whatever name you want to put on it, significantly and profoundly and lastingly impairs performance, all kinds of performance, physical performance, mental performance, emotional performance, and so even spiritual performance. You can't pray very well or meditate very well if you are anxious. Mm -hmm. Negative thoughts, uh, you know, popping up into your awareness, obsessing about them. All of this is quelled, quelled by learned increases in EEG alpha activity. And BioCybernaut has perhaps the premier program for doing that with patented electronic technology and with patented and optimized training protocols, for example, uh, you most academicians know the difference between massed practice and distributed practice. You cannot take off in an airplane with distributed practice. If you taxi 100 feet and stop and come back a week later and taxi another 100 feet and stop and so on, you get to the end of the runway and this transformation that we call flight has not happened. 
the airplane is a ground vehicle and hasn't become an aerial vehicle because you need to apply power continuously to build up speed so that the lift over the wings brings the ground vehicle into an aerial vehicle. In the same way, the transformations that BioCybernaut uh, benefit from and require mass practice. And so we give you 10 to 12 hour days, seven days in a row. And along the way you achieve liftoff into a higher state of consciousness, which is involves lower anxiety, lower sadness, lower fear, and uh, greater happiness, greater joy, greater productivity, greater creativity, higher IQ and higher emotional intelligence. And there you are thriving, looking like the bright person on glowing on the hill. Mm. Okay, so I gotta say, it sounds amazing. And I heard Tony Robbins talk about this because he went through your program and he said, look, this is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> he said the experience was not fun, but it was absolutely 100% worth it. Um, so can you speak to what the experience is like? I, I just saw him recently again. He was saying, you know, if you're looking for an easy coast, don't bother. Ah, right. If, if you're going to make... 40 years of progress, as in the Zen meditation progress, if you're going to make 21 to 40 years of progress in just seven days, there's mm -hmm. no time for loafing or lollygagging at the side of the road. It's like, you know, get on your pack and let's hike. The days are long, 10 to 12 hours a day, but some of it you can be lying down in the debriefings that occur in a canopied bed room at the end of the day. Uh, you may lie down and if, it's, if you're not being interviewed, you may actually, you're allowed to fall asleep, provided you don't snore. If you snore, we wake you up. There's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you don't have to climb stairs and you don't have to, you know, there is a rebounder. You can bounce up and down. There's a vibration plate if you want. But uh, your brain will work probably harder than it's ever worked before. Because even in the Alpha One Single, uh, where you go into the chamber only once a day, um, your brain is receiving six channels of uh, auditory feedback, which each one is being altered in volume to track the ever-changing al underlying alpha activity, or theta if you're doing a theta training. And the each tone is being altered 50 times per second. So with six tones going, even in the alpha one single, you've got six times 50, which is 300 changes per second. And we invite people to listen to the tones as though their life depended on it. And so you have three, your brain has 300 opportunities per second to learn. And what does it learn? Well, it learns uh, by paying attention simultaneously to this incredibly rich audio environment. Mm. And simultaneously paying attention to the content of your consciousness. So when you hear a change in the audio, either an increase or a decrease in the volume of one or more of the tones, then you note what just happened in your awareness, in your mind. And for example, let's say you've been thinking a worrying thought and all of a sudden that worrying thought stopped and was replaced by the peaceful silence of oneness and there's a big surge in the tones, you go, hmm, maybe thinking isn't the way to master this. Mm -hmm. Alpha isn't what you think. And if you're thinking, you're not maximizing your alpha. This is a challenge for academics who've been changed to think, 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 think. They've been, they've been trained and in charge to think. Well, sometimes taking a vacation from thinking is where all the good ideas come from. Okay. So tell me about your own experience with it. What was your experience like um, it, with this biofeedback training and how did it affect you? How did it change you? Uh, profoundly. But let's go even earlier as a child. Uh, my mother was the sixth born child on a family farm, uh, German ancestry in southern Minnesota near Red Wing. And she was the first one in her family to go to high school. The other kids were needed on the farm. And so uh, she loved high school. She loved learning. And for most of my life with my mother, 
I remember her sighing wistfully going, oh, I wish I'd had more education. So naturally, I became the fulfillment of my mother's wishes. That the summer between my eighth grade and high school, my father took me into his office and he said, Jim, you're a smart kid and you're probably going to want to go to college. I'm here to tell you I'm not going to give you a dime. If you want to go to college, you're going to have to study hard and get a scholarship. So my high school years consisted of studying till 2 a.m. every morning, every night, including on the weekends. Uh, I didn't drink. I didn't party. I didn't date. Well, I did take someone to the senior prom. But my <laughs> high school career was about getting a scholarship, and I loved learning. And so then I got a scholarship, and I got a, a bachelor's degree in physics. And then I went uh, after, during that year, my senior year, in physics at Carnegie Institute of Technology. I came out of the student uh, union lunch and was met by a big, colorful, hand-painted sign, every letter a different color, and it said, Dr. Joe Camilla will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. The time was just 10 minutes hence. The building, Margaret Morrison College, was right across the tennis court, and that hour I did not have a class, so I went. Changed my life because I learned that there were brainwaves which could measure and which changed profoundly in different states of consciousness. So every spare minute, my senior year, I was in the library reading on brainwaves. When I graduated in the spring with a BS in physics, I hopped on my Triumph motorcycle, rode up into Canada, drove across the Trans-Canadian Highway to the West Coast, down I-5, getting off at San Francisco, I reported to Joe Camille's lab at UCSF, <clears throat> volunteered as a research subject in his lab. The most fascinating thing I had ever done, even though it was quite primitive, one channel, middle of the back of the head, midline occipital, one three-digit score, Nixie tubes, uh, a now vanished technology where you had a vacuum tube with all the different filaments representing numbers, and depending on which pins you powered, a number would go zero, three, four, whatever. And one speaker to provide the audio, which was a one foot wide uh, speaker, no cabinet with a torn paper sitting on an orange crate in the corner of a closet off the bedroom where there was housed a gigantic Digital Equipment Corp PDP 15 mini computer that ran the whole show. And so it was, as I said, the most fascinating thing I'd ever done. And I had three days of it, about an hour each day. Desperate to have more, I went back on the fourth day and was hugely disappointed to find they weren't doing any studies. But I had gotten to know how the lab worked and Camille's girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked there. She and I had become friends. So I went to her office and asked her if she would take me downstairs, put a few electrodes on, plug me in so I could play. She goes, oh yeah, sure, of course. She does this, fires up the computer, not the polygraph, because I wasn't anybody's data, plus it takes uh, somebody to monitor a polygraph so the paper doesn't jam and the pens don't uh, run out of ink, things like that. And then she leaves and goes upstairs, gets involved in her work, and later lunchtime comes and she and nine other members of the lab go out to lunch in Paul Gorman's VW camper van. And in course 11, of a 12-course Chinese lunch, she goes, oh my God, <laughs> she remembered there was somebody cooking in the chamber. <laughs> they all pile back into the van, race across town, run up to the building, rip open the door, come inside, rip open the door of the chamber, and interrupt the later stages of a most incredible adventure. Now, I'd gone into that chamber, a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, and there I am having out-of-body experience flying around the universe, uh, having uh, ego disintegration, uh, and encountering discorporate entities. Uh, this was quite a lot for a Protestant fundamental. <laughs> and so then the door opens, and there are these 10 worried-looking people there. <laughs> happened, And as I start recounting my adventures, Paul Gorman, who just toured India last summer in that van, said, oh, that's a meditation experience. And I say more, oh, that's a meditation experience. And so what I came to realize later, because I wrote all this up in 1984 in Michael Hutchison's Mega Brain Report, anybody who wants to go find that can, uh, 
or we may even be on our website. It's called A Tale of Self-Discovery. Uh, it was an incredibly accelerated program of spiritual development that some people say takes lifetimes under ordinary circumstances. But what I've discovered and what I continue to marvel at is this technology speeds things up. This technology speeds up the development of your consciousness, the expansion of your awareness. The ego is uh, infamous for blocking any kind of growth, especially personal and spiritual growth. And in uh, over a thousand years of Zen practice in Japan, the masters there identified what they call the five hindrances. Uh, they are doubt, drowsiness, distractibility and worry, aversion and any form of ill will, and boredom. And these were seen to encompass the entire range of the hindrances that were seen to block progress in the practice of Zen meditation over a thousand year span. Now, found in 2006, the Zen ox herding stories, a tiny little book that described these, I immediately started using them in the training to great advantage because when the trainees knew what weapons their ego was using against them to block the expansion of their awareness, the increase of their intelligence, the expansion of their creativity, when they knew what weapons were being used against them, they could call out ego and say, hey, ego, I see you using drowsiness. I see you using distractibility. I see you using aversion and evil against me. I see you using doubt. Get out of here. Their progress accelerated dramatically. Well, along the way, I discovered that ego was also using forgetfulness against people. And so I added it. I had the temerity to uh, add to a 1,000-year-old uh, text of wisdom by adding <laughs> and so And that turned out to be very helpful for many people. But then I had this problem, like, those Zen guys were so brilliant. How did they miss the ego's use of forgetfulness? 2006, 2007, 2008, every training I would ask, how did those Zen guys miss forgetfulness? And finally... December of 2008, I'd moved the training center to Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. In December, we had a brilliant Canadian businessman who'd grown a company from zero to $2 billion in just two years with one partner, Murray Edwards. And when I asked this question, how did those Zen guys miss forgetfulness? He gave me a one-word answer that blew me away. He said, Mercury. HG in the periodic table, it causes, guess what, forgetfulness, destroys neurons in the brain, actually causes them to disassemble. And um, I've seen this in a photo micrograph, a movie made through a microscope. And so before the widespread burning of coal, which in the advanced countries only goes back a couple hundred years, there was no mercury contamination of the biosphere. So the reason the Zen guys 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 300 years ago, and on forgetfulness is because there was no mercury contamination of the biosphere, and we can infer that human memories worked better. They were like a steel trap. Information went in, and it stayed there. It wasn't forgotten. Now, this also teaches us something about the ego, which is that it must be an opportunistic predator. So if an individual or a people, a population, a planet a full of humans suddenly has mercury contamination in their brains, then ego can use forgetfulness as a hindrance against them. So, of course, you never want to put another bite of tuna or swordfish in your mouth. It's very heavily contaminated with mercury. And so you don't even want to eat pheasant because mercury fungicide is used to prevent grain from spoiling in the ground before it sprouts and pheasants and other wild bird, wild turkeys and so on go around and eat the grain and accumulate mercury. And so, you know, it can show up in surprising places, but you definitely want to avoid any form of mercury because it contributes to forgetfulness. Okay, so now the five hindrances plus forgetfulness are blocks and impediments. So now I'm in, uh, uh, I go, I get a pre-doc, uh, I go back to California. I do my master's degree at Carnegie Mellon in, in Pittsburgh, uh, 
And then I go out, I get a pre-doc and I go out and I continue my research at Joe Camilla's lab in San Francisco. <clears throat> and I'm a, I'm a postdoc then, and uh, then I'm assistant research psychologist. And I'm working with uh, data, analyzing the data. And I discover that when high anxiety people increase their alpha with my training above an eyes closed resting baseline, that they become low anxiety people. Now, incredible benefits for performance as well as happiness in life. So I went running into Joe Camilla saying, hey, Joe, I've got the basis of a paper in science and a large federal grant. And his comment was, Jim, we have to put some glue on your shoes. But I persisted. And I did eventually, five years later, get a paper published in Science, one of the top two premier uh, general science magazines in the world, documenting that increased alpha reduces anxiety, both types, state anxiety and trait. Trait is a long-term personality disposition, which many psychiatrists don't even believe can be changed over the adult lifespan. And the state anxiety is transient. It's of the moment, like you step off a curve and almost get hit by a bus and you jump back and your heart's pounding and your breath is short. And, <laughs> and so, but that's it. Both types of anxiety are abolished by learned increases in EEG alpha activity. So when uh, the grant was funded, I was promoted from an assistant research psychologist to an assistant professor of medical psychology within the August UCSF psychiatry department. And I continued to do this work. Um, I would give personality tests to the people before their seven day trainings. And then I would uh, repeat this at the end. And I was seeing profound reductions in psychopathology, things like anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, depression, which might be in the 98th or 99th percentile, seven days later are smack dab in the middle of the normal zone, maybe even below 50%. So um, 50th percentile. So then shortly after I become an assistant professor, the chairman of the department decrees that all the faculty should gather for an annual faculty retreat and spend 10 minutes on stage speaking about their research. So I figured, wow, these psychiatrists are really going to love what I'm doing. I'm, and I've got the MMPI, which is like mother's milk to a psychiatrist, uh, the, the, one of the granddaddies of the personality test uh, field. It was standardized in 1945 with 10,000 Americans. And a psychiatrist or psychologist, clinical psychologist, can look at one, and he can like totally read the person beads. And in addition to the eight clinical scales and three lie scales, so you can crack for faking bad or faking good, there's dozens to hundreds of subscales that become specialties of people looking at different populations with psychopathology. So I make up slides uh, to show pre and post, seven or in some cases, eight days apart. And I'm very happy up on stage showing my slides. And I'm only halfway through my 10-minute talk and two senior bearded members of the department have jumped out of their seats and they're angrily yelling and shouting and waving their fingers and shaking their fists. And I was literally <laughs> shouted off the stage. Mm. I didn't understand at the time what happened. Now I know what happened. If you look, take the emotional hierarchy, apathy at the bottom, sadness and depression above that, anger above that, fear above that, and joy at the top. Whatever emotion is there that you're unwilling to acknowledge shows up one below. So anger is just below fear. So these professional psychiatrists, academic psychiatrists, were in fear that this newest, youngest whippersnapper member of their department was going to disrupt their august profession because they had never seen profound changes in personality like this. And I was using their own instrument, the MMPI. And so I was shouted off the stage. And so uh, many psychiatrists at the time didn't even believe that you could change personality as an adult. Maybe if you were willing to take some drugs or do some psychotherapy for 20 years, you could tinker a little bit at the margins and, and fit in a little better with other egos, but they would say, let's not even talk about changing core dimensions of personality. But at BioCybernaut, we know that your personality is a function of your brainwaves. 
You change your brainwaves and you change your personality. Personality is like an operating system and you can take a, a computer and you can load Windows on it or DOS or Unix or Linux and the hardware functions differently. And people have studied multiples like where they might have a female body that is inhabited and run sometimes by Linda, sometimes by Jane and sometimes by Bill. Well, if Linda's running that body, that body is allergic to oranges. They can't drink orange juice. They can't peel oranges without breaking into red itchy hives. But if Jane or Bill are running the body, they can take a bath in orange juice. They could pick oranges all day in an orange grove and there would be no problems. Personality is an operating system and it's controlled by your brainwaves. You change your brainwaves, you change your identity. Well, Frederick Dodson in his book, Parallel Universes of Self, teaches that identity and reality are synonymous. So if you're an academic and you are confronted by a reality that you don't like and you think you can't change, change your identity and your reality will poof, almost like you had a magic wand, change. Come to BioCybernaut and change your brainwaves. Your personality slash identity will change profoundly. Usually on day one, uh, when we're doing orientation, I ask everyone to momentarily close their eyes and get in touch with who they think themselves to be. What are you, a male? Are you a female? Are you, obviously, you're a, you've been, you were a child. Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a professional. Maybe, you know, you have a career. Uh, maybe you have these virtues, these traits, these characteristics. Whatever it is, bring it to mind and sit with that for a moment. Then I ask them to gently open their eyes and I smile and I say, who you think yourself to be, you will know at the end of this week that you never were that person. You're far more conscious, you're far more loving, you're far more aware, you're far more intelligent, you're far more creative than you ever previously thought yourself to be because you will have changed your brainwaves, which means you will have changed your identity, which guess what, according to Dodson, your reality will change. Now, we can go all the way back to uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in his famous quote, where he says, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That truth is that the moment one commits oneself, then providence moves too, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man or woman could have dreamed would have come their way. Whatever you can do, you can. Whatever you can imagine, you can do. Genius has boldness, power, and magic in it, so begin it now. Now, one word in there that's kind of archaic is providence. One, The moment one commits, then providence moves too. Now, we ask people, what do you understand by providence? Some say source, some say it all, some say universe, some say God. In colonial New England, the word providence was uh, used very frequently, and people would appeal to providence, understanding it to be God. And so what we have here is Goethe, back in the 17, 1800s, saying once you commit, then providence moves too. Well, commit means in that moment, you have taken on the identity of someone who has committed to do something. You have taken on transiently a new identity, and then providence moves too, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man or woman could have dreamed would have come their way. This is it works. This is how reality changes once you change your identity. How do you change your identity? Very simple. Come to BioCybernaut and do some brainwave training. So I got to say, I can feel like a little bit of a little twinge of fear when you say, change your identity, change your personality. And, um, you know, a, a personality is just an operating system. And so I'm thinking, okay, so when people show up and they're told, look, your personality is going to change, how do they react? What is the fear response? I'm guessing there is some. The, there have been perhaps 7,000 people who have come for some form of the biocybernet training. And they are uh, they were as young as eight and as old as 101. CEOs of billion-dollar companies. They include Middle Eastern royalty, European royalty, grandmothers and grandfathers, shaman, uh, Indian chiefs, council members, and 
scientists, engineers, programmers, uh, bus drivers, uh, Las Vegas cocktail waitresses who saved up 10 years to get the tips to come to BioCyberNon. It includes people from all walks of life. There is only one thing that I have found common among all of them. They all want change. Mm. They all want change, and that's really the one thing that links them all. But are there particular themes uh, that show up more often than others? Um, are people coming looking for a, a certain change more than other changes? Well, um, this time period has perhaps infamously been called the age of anxiety. Mm. Back around uh, the late 80s, I remember working on business plans and citing that the top five anti-anxiety drugs were grossing half a billion dollars of sales every year, and I'm sure it's higher now. So, um, yes, a lot of people have stress and anxiety, and uh, when alpha goes up, uh, the experience of stress and anxiety literally vanishes. And of course, your performance goes up because uh, anxiety has been known, as I mentioned, since the late 1880s, anxiety has been shown to impair all types of performance. So you just lessen the anxiety and your performance zooms upward. And so does your happiness because it's no fun to worry and stress and ruminate. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now this brings me to my questions about your career. Um, I think that identity issues, I know, based on all the interviews I've done with people, that identity issues are the things that really keep academics feeling stuck in their careers, even when they feel like they're sort of done with their career. It's like they can't imagine themselves anything other than an academic. And I'm wondering, um, based on your experience with this, um, based on the fact that you had this really uh, transformative experience when you were young, did you have any trouble exiting academia when you felt it was time? Well, you know, some little birds have to be pushed out of the nest. <laughs> okay. And so there I was comfortably ensconced. Uh, I uh, had private funding from the Johnny Fetzer uh, Foundation, which provided over uh, 12 years of uh, ever-increasing support. Uh, I had support from within the department. Uh, I was in Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute, and Notch Calloway was the director of research, and he liked me, liked my work. Uh, and uh, he actually made some introductions to Martin T. Orn, who was uh, blocking my publication of science paper. He introduced me to Martin Orne in some of the politics of science at a psychophysiology meeting in San Diego. Martin was so impressed with me and my work that he invited me to come and work for him at eight times the salary I was making at UCSF uh, on the condition that I not publish the science paper, which made him look like he was caught with his methodological pants down. I declined the offer, and next time I submitted the science paper, he graciously uh, declined to review it, passed it on to his co-author, David Paskowitz, who immediately approved it. It was published. And then when my federal grant was up for the site visit, Martin Orne came as head of the site visit team, and I got to show him the brainwave recordings of people dramatically increasing their alpha waves, something he had never been able to do in his lab in uh, Philadelphia. And so he funded, he approved the funding of my federal grant. So I thought I was well set up. Well, uh, when Reagan swept into office, <clears throat> he decimated NIH. 70% of the in-house research staff were fired. My grant was not renewed. It had gone three years. A renewal would have been pretty easy under normal circumstances. And Reagan said, go private sector. Well, what was interesting was that <clears throat> in the same way that uh, uh, the, uh, oh, the uh, ornithopters uh, evolved out of uh, the dinosaurs, the theropod dinosaurs, uh, the flighted uh, birds, so did my work evolve out of this. Uh, there I was in a subsidized environment, paying 60% of my research funds 
to overhead uh, to the university, and they provided electricity and you know space and you know janitorial and heat and cooling and all of that. And so, but my research was proving to be so valuable to people who did the training that the UCSF Human Subjects Committee approved my charging $3,000 for every one of the people I ran through the seven-day training. Now, this obviously is not the federal grant research subjects because, you know, the the grant paid and actually paid the people a dollar a day to cover their bus fare to and from uh, the uh, laboratory. But after the grant was over and I continued with private funding from the Fetzer Foundation, I had a non-expiring professorship, which was another real gift that Marjorie Raskin had arranged for me. So, uh, you know, I had a non-expiring professorship. And so the UCS Human Subjects Committee allowed me to charge $3,000 for everyone who did the training. And pretty soon in Silicon Valley, there's quite a cadre of people with quite a buzz who knew about my training and who wanted to get onto my research schedule. Well, then I trained two Army intelligence officers, uh, John B. Alexander and James McLaughlin, uh, who came and did the Alpha One training in separate chambers. And then they did the Alpha one shared feedback where they would go into the same chamber at the same time and hear each other's feedback tones and see each other's scores because they had heard that this led to telepathic exchanges and they were very interested in that. Now, everyone I'd ever done shared feedback with uh, always had their highest alpha uh, uh, of the week when I would do shared feedback with them. So I offered that to these guys, but they had high security clearances and I had none so they declined my invitation because they didn't want to risk their oath of secrecy by having secrets leaked to me while uh, we were doing shared feedback. But uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Alexander rose to the rank of colonel, and he wrote a book that included a whole chapter on their experiences at BioCyberNaut. The book is called The Warrior's Edge. It's a cult classic out of print, but you can sometimes find it for three or $400 on Amazon used. And in that chapter, he confirmed that he and Lieutenant Colonel James McLaughlin had secrets slip between them, in other words, telepathic experiences, while they were doing the BioCybernaut shared feedback training. So uh, then when John Alexander left uh, those two weeks, he went up the uh, Highway 1 to Foster Gamble. His wife and Foster Gamble's wife had been in a uh, seminar together. And he asked Foster, you know, well, what are you up to in your life? And Foster said, well, I've realized that uh, we, to change the course of humanity so we don't self-destruct, we need a raising consciousness. So he was designing a consciousness tuning chamber, and he realized that the core of it needed to be brainwave feedback. And he was just about to set out on a global search for the best brainwave feedback in the world. And Colonel Alexander, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander laughed, and he said, well, U.S. Army has just done that search, U.S. Army intelligence, and we found the best brainwave feedback on the planet, and it's just 20 minutes from your home. It's down there at Agnew State Hospital, and the guy's name is Dr. James Hart, and here's his phone number. So Foster and I got together, and he, he and his wife both did the training, and then we started a company that became Mind Center. And so it was providing, using the biocybernet technology, it was providing brainwave training in Palo Alto. But whereas um, the university had allowed me to charge $3,000 per week for this um, in a totally subsidized environment, you know, I used it to buy computers and other equipment, uh, Foster lowered the price of the training to $750, uh, shortened the training to five days, and of course, that was not a viable economic model. So Mind Center existed as long as his mother was willing to write several hundred thousand dollar checks every few months to subsidize what was a money losing operation. Did a lot of good. We trained a lot of important people. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the we've had people tell us that we're not charging enough for this training based on the value that it brings back. I mentioned this uh, philanthropist in, in Canada, the one who'd grown his company from zero to $2 billion in two years. His name is Alan Paul Markin. And uh, he put up $6 million in personal money to fund scholarships. He sent 
200 plus Canadian Aboriginals, but he also sent people from his company. And so these are people that he knew, people he worked with. And he said that the ROI on a biosabernet training was a hundred. So if he $15,000 for the simplest, cheapest training, the employee got back, he valued at one and a half million dollars. And so wow. there's, another, there's another economics, which is important. I mentioned uh, Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Dr. Travis Bradbury and Janine Greaves. They've studied emotional intelligence all over the world, and they have found that a one-point increase in EQ translates globally uh, to $1,300 more annual income. Now, that's mm -hmm. an average that includes first world, second world, and third world countries. So average income of Bangladesh and Pakistan and the Maldives and, you know, things like that are all rolled in, as well as Germany, France, England, Canada, U.S., Mexico, Peru. And so if you're in a first world country, your opportunities are so much greater that the gain would likely be much more than $1,300 per point of EQ. Well, at an average increase in EQ of 15.8 points from the Alpha One Premium Double Training, you multiply 15... 0.8 by 1,300, and you get way north of $20,000, which more than pays for the cost of the Alpha One Premium Double Training. And mm -hmm. that's the first year because with the EQ elevation, you should be able to go on in the next 20 years and make you know $400,000 more than you would have made if you hadn't done the training. So there are a lot of compelling economic reasons, uh, as well as personal satisfaction, creativity. Uh, let me give you an example of a creative artist. We, there was a man who had started a company, artistic company, uh, that was grossing half a billion dollars a year. And it was uh, funded. It was uh, the, the money came from works of creative art that came out of his mind. And over 20 years, he had a stable average of producing 80 images a year that were good enough to go into production. So a 20-year baseline 80 images per year. In the six weeks following his alpha training, he did 110 images. Wow. And that didn't count the weekend where he painted 40 big, like six by eight foot canvases. People who watched him said paint was just flying off his brushes. And so, uh, you know, the process of creativity has been much studied. It's important. And there's alpha creativity and there's theta creativity. Theta is much rarer and more valuable. However, the alpha creativity is immensely valuable and it has four stages. The first stage is uh, pay your dues. It's called the application phase where you learn the data of your chosen field and you learn what good problems are. Stage two is incubation where you take the problem, choose a problem and you brew on it. Alpha is really good for that. The third stage is the illumination phase, the eureka. I found it. This is where Archimedes jumps naked out of the public bath in Athens and goes running down the street yelling, eureka, eureka, I found it. This is sustained by a huge burst of alpha. A big burst of alpha is what conveys these eureka experiences. Mm. Fourth stage is verification where you go back to your study, your bench, your lab, and you test out the insights to make sure that they work. And so the two most important stages, the incubation and the illumination, require a big burst of alpha. In fact, in the mid-'80s, Colin Martindale, a researcher at the University of Maine in Orono, decided to study brainwave training and creativity. Now, he didn't know much about brainwave training. Uh, but what he did, and he shot himself in the foot as a result, but he nevertheless came up with some important data on creativity. He took a group of creative people known to be creative by the obvious indice of creativity. They had patents, they had publications, they had sculptures, uh, they had uh, uh, paintings. And then he made a demographically matched group of that he called normals. And he brought the two groups of people into his lab and measured their brainwaves at rest. Intriguingly, there was no difference overall in the brainwaves between the creative people and the normals when they were at rest. But... Then he gave them problems to work on. The normals sat there in their normal brainwave state, ho-hum, and did only as well as normals usually do, ho-hum. But the creative 
immediately turned on a big burst of alpha all over the head. And within this big burst of alpha, they quickly and effectively solved the problems in a manner which then distinguished them as creative people. And so Colin Martindale said, creativity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. Hmm. Seems to me I heard Dr. Hart a little while ago saying that identity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. Your personality is an operating system that is there because you're running a certain pattern of brainwaves. And when you change your brainwaves, you change your operating system, you change your personality, you change your creativity. This is starting to look like a coherent um, mm -hmm. arrow pointing in the direction of, we say, brainwaves rule. And they do. They rule your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your perceptions. You cannot have the perception of the color blue unless you have in your occipital region the brainwaves for blue, which are different from the brainwaves for yellow, red, green, or purple. And so if you had closed eyes and you could, with feedback, learn to produce those brainwaves, guess what? You would see that color. Brainwaves rule. Okay. I love it. That is such a great place to end, honestly. And I wanted to ask you if there was anything you wanted to say to sort of close up our conversation and make it feel complete to you. Well, I have a gift for your listeners. Our website is www.biocybernaut.com. Now, a biocybernaut is to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space. Not as Greek suffix implying someone who goes on an adventure. Think Jason and the Argonauts in pursuit of the golden fleece, which Jason had to bring back to the king to win the king's daughter's hand in marriage. Then we had astronauts and cosmonauts. And now we have biocybernauts, which explore inner space with the cyber technology. Cypher is an ancient word that means to calculate. Bio is pretty clear. Bio, cyber, not, N-A-U-T. Biocybernauts to inner space what an astronaut is to outer space and when you go to www.biocybernaut.com slash bonus you can download a free pdf copy of my book the art of smart thinking awesome dr hart thank you so much for being here it has been such a pleasure truly a delight to hang out with you thanks for listening to self-compassionate professor Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.